Welcome to Outcry, a podcast where we discuss the issue of sexual abuse in the Jewish community. In this episode, we'll be telling you who we are, what we do, why we do it, and why it matters. So let's get into it, I guess. I'm Usher. Uh, I'm the director of Zaka. And I'm Ariella, and I am one of the social media managers and survivor liaisons for Zaka. And Zaka is an organization dedicated to advocating for survivors of sexual abuse in the Jewish community, primarily in the Orthodox Jewish community. Most of what we do involves raising awareness about the issue of sexual abuse, uh, educating the public about how to protect their children from sexual abuse and how to properly address it if it happens, informing the public about accused and convicted predators in their communities, supporting survivors who disclose their abuse, providing them referrals to mental health, legal and material resources, advocating for legislative reforms on the state and federal level to protect children and secure justice for survivors, and running a Shabbos and Yom Tov mental health peer support hotline for people who need support on Shabbos and Yom Tov and can't get the help they need from their usual, from their usual resources. Okay, so now that we've put everybody to sleep, let's get into the details of what that actually means. All right. Zaka, do you want to do the honors? Go. Uh, Never mind. Yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, whatever. You know, it's fine. We could goof around on this. I could just cut parts out. Um, <laughs> uh, Zaka was started in early 2012 by five members of Footsteps. Ari and Ellie Mandel, Hannah Shapiro, Hani Friedman, and Abe Weiss, who came together to organize a protest outside of the Internet Asifa at City Field. For those of you who either don't know what the Internet Asifa was or have blocked it out of your memories because of how stupid it was, the Internet Asifa, <laughs> literally translated as Internet Gathering, was a mass rally organized by a broad coalition of Haredi, often referred to by the media as ultra-Orthodox, which is a reductive and an unhelpful term that we'll be discussing later. We're going to use the more correct term of Haredi, although there's still a lot to unpack there, but whatever. We'll get into terms in a different episode. Uh, uh, one thing I just want to interrupt you with, for those of you that are not New York-centric, City Field is a stadium. I had a lot of people ask me that, like, what is City Field? It's a, it's a stadium. It's, I think, funded by Citibank, which is why yeah. it's called City Field. Okay. Yeah, it's where the Mets play. Yeah, um, that, that's it. Yeah. So it, it was, it was a, a group of communities across New York and New Jersey that came together at City Field uh, to make this event for the purpose of declaring the internet banned. Now, some of you more keen observers may have noticed that the internet didn't actually go away in 2012. Uh, it's still around, as evidenced by the fact that you're listening to this podcast. And Pro- Josh Duggar. <laughs> 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 yeah, and, 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 and you're accessing this podcast probably not on your flip phone. It's probably on a smartphone or something like that, you know. Um, that's because the real purpose of the event wasn't to actually ban the internet. It was to declare to the community that its leaders and Rabbanim had now conferred upon themselves the power to mess your life up if you use the internet in a way they didn't like. Explicitly mentioned at the Sasifa were the angry bloggers who at the time were the only people railing against the community's rampant cover-up of sexual abuse and were starting to get mainstream attention within the, the community. There's a lot to discuss about how the community is structured and why it would want to do something like ban the internet, and we'll discuss that in future podcast episodes, but for now, we're just going to move on. This is just a quick introductory episode. There's going to be a lot of questions that are going to be addressed in later episodes, so you're going to have to keep coming back. We're not giving you everything in this one. This is the episode where when you're listening to another episode in the future and you say, wait, what is that? We're going to say, see introductory episode. Exactly. Exactly. This link is going to start getting annoying. Yeah. The, for, a, for a boring time, click here. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> so this Asifa was taking place a year after 
Agudas Israel released a ruling on the permissibility of reporting sexual abuse to the authorities. In this ruling, they set forth a halachic framework for when it is and isn't allowed to report sexual abuse to police. Now, just as an aside, uh, what they did was illegal, especially since in many states, the law requires that everybody who's aware of sexual abuse reports it to the authorities. So them telling you not to go report suspected sexual abuse to the authorities unless you've asked a rabbi basically tells people in, st- in states where that's the law or for people Including who are New mandated. Including New York, no? Right. Well, in, in New York, there are a lot of people who are mandated to, to report abuse. Not everybody, but a good have made a blanket statement. So that really, as far as they're concerned, applies to everybody, including teachers who would be mandated reporters, doctors, nurses, etc. Correct. Right. Yeah. So they're essentially telling people to obstruct justice here. Um, and... So according to this ruling, abuse could only be reported when the reporter had raglaim lidavar, idiomatically translated as the matter has legs. But essentially it means that there's reasonable suspicion to believe that the abuse has taken place. And if you didn't have this, it would be considered msira or informing to the secular authorities as interpreted by the Haredi community. Uh, and, and generally speaking, when we're talking about msira, it doesn't carry this penalty these days, but the, the halachic writing about Mesira says that essentially someone who is guilty of Mesira, of informing, is their, their life is essentially forfeit. You could do what you want to to them, including killing them. Now, that doesn't happen these days, but back in the day, the background on, on Mesira is that when you had Jews living in countries and, and communities where there actually wasn't a justice system that was in any way fair, that didn't have any kind of due process and was most likely motivated by anti-Semitism, reporting a Jew to the authorities could not only have devastating and potentially deadly consequences to the person who was reported, but it could also bring down a a certain amount of collective punishment on the community as a whole, which is why Masira was considered something so serious, because you could potentially be endangering a lot of lives just by informing to the secular authorities. These days, this doesn't really apply because we live in a country that, I I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the justice system is completely fair. It's not. Uh, And and this is a very complicated thing that we grapple with at Zaka, especially since we tell people to report all the time. And and we're going to cover that in a future episode. Also Um, with our complicated relationship with police. Right. Like it's, it's, it's very, um, it's a, it's a very difficult line to toe when you're like both solidly ACAB and telling people that they should report to police. And, exactly. and, and like yeah. there's, there, there's a lot that goes into that. And we're going to discuss it at some point. Yeah. Um, but broadly speaking, these days, we do live in a country with a, you know, a relatively fair system where the system is transparent, uh, where there's an appeals process, where it doesn't seem to be an overwhelming bias against Jews. So the laws of Messiah don't exist, but their legacy gets invoked anytime anyone is trying to prevent people from reporting some sort of crime to the authorities. And in this case, sexual abuse, even though the crime is so serious. So aside from making that that requirement on people that they wait until they have Raglan Ladavar to uh to Which is also very sub- it's also very subjective because what does reasonable suspicion mean? Right. And you also know? and also I mean that's the regular standard for reporting sexual abuse is if you suspect sexual abuse then you have to report it. If you don't suspect sexual abuse then what are you doing? You know? Right. So like telling people that you could only report if you suspect it is like, yeah, I, I know. I know. That's why I'm reporting it, because I suspect it. Um, right. And, and like that, that, that may be a more reasonable 
ruling to give people to tell them that like, hey, you know, report it when you suspect it. Like that may actually induce people to report more, except that aside from saying that, they went on to take it a step further. Um, and clause five of their ruling said that, and by the way, you can find the ruling in full in the show notes. Um, uh, it's on their Cross Currents website, which is the Aguda's official blog. Um, it says that there, there may be times when an individual may feel that a report or evidence he has seen rises to the level of Raglaim Ledever and times when he may feel otherwise. Because the question of reporting has serious implications for all parties and raises sensitive halachic issues, the individual should not rely exclusively on his own judgment to determine the presence or absence of Raglaim Ledever. Rather, he should present the facts of the case to a rabbi who is expert in halacha and who also has experience in the area of abuse and molestation, someone who is fully sensitive to both the gravity of the halachic considerations and the urgent need to protect children. Now, essentially, this created a requirement to ask permission of a rabbi before reporting sexual abuse to the authorities. To be clear, this is flatly illegal. As we said before, it's illegal in many states where either some or all of the residents are mandated reporters. And while Agudas Yisrael was the only organization stupid enough to put this in writing, it was already the unwritten rule in a lot of the communities participating in the Internet Asifa. Reporting sexual abuse was strictly forbidden unless you got permission from a rabbi first. As we'll discuss in more detail in future episodes, we are going to cover it a little bit in this episode, but we're going to get a little bit more into detail in that case in a future episode. Even having a rabbi's permission to report didn't guarantee your safety in the, the community if you reported and after getting a, the permission from a rabbi. But that's a longer story for another time. Prior to this ruling, and to this day, survivors of sexual abuse in the Orthodox community routinely face intense backlash for daring to report to secular authorities, including being fired from their jobs, evicted from their housing, having their kids expelled from school, finding themselves completely ostracized from their families and communities, being subjected to death threats, harassment, and generally treated like absolute pariahs. The Internet Asifa cost millions of dollars to organize between paying for the venue, transporting people to the venue, managing the logistics, and advertising. All for something as asinine, idiotic, and pointless as banning the Internet, all while survivors of sexual abuse couldn't even find access to any resources within the community for mental health care, legal fees, housing, or support. The founders of Zaka came together to protest this, this hypocrisy. Now, it happens to be at the time I was still ready. Um, I had grown up in Bower Park as a kid in a family that was somewhere between Litvish and Heimish. Those terms are a little hard to quickly translate. So for anybody listening, you know, we'll get into it at a different time. We actually are going to have an episode where we try to break down what exactly the term ultra-Orthodox means for, for audiences who don't necessarily know firsthand. Um, but in it was- short, Usher did not grow up wearing furry hats. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I didn't grow up wearing furry hats, but I did grow up wearing a hat of some kind. Um, right. Although that didn't last long. Um, <laughs> uh, so while I was chronically online at that point uh, as an abused kid trying to escape real life, I still felt the need to defend the community. And while one of the founders of Zaka was a close friend of mine, I disagreed with, with them about the protest. And actually, I, I didn't end up going to the protest. I, I, I felt, and now I feel that what I felt at the time was wrong, that a community can simultaneously hold two things as important that the internet is a bad influence and something that should be banned. And I think anybody who's ever been on Twitter may actually be sympathetic to that argument. Um, And that sexual abuse is a bad thing that should be addressed. Uh, I wasn't at that first protest. Like I said, I sat it out because I didn't believe in it. 
These days, having seen not only how little the community as a whole cares about the issue and survivors, but how hard they fight against properly addressing sexual abuse while continuing to dedicate enormous amounts of resources to similarly asinine causes like banning laced front wigs and decrying the evils of Zumba. Um, I, I feel differently now. While it may in theory be possible for a community to care about two things at once, this community cares too much about one and not nearly enough about the other. Were that protest being held today, I'd probably be there leading it, but so it goes. There actually was another one for, for, for women only because uh, women weren't invited to the first one um, that we just didn't find out about soon enough to do a protest. Otherwise, we totally would have, and it would have made up for the fact that I missed the first one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, we'll uh, forgive you. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Uh, uh, Abe Weiss still gives, me, uh, still gives me crap about missing that, that, that first protest. But, um, he is but, the founding father. Yeah, yeah. And he's actually the guy who's responsible for me running Zaka now. Um, there but you go. we'll get into that later in the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I did kind of redeem myself though, uh, because a month before that protest, an unlicensed therapist in Williamsburg named Nehemia Weberman was arrested for repeatedly raping a 12 year old client over the course of three years. The Weberman case became one of the most public sexual abuse trials to happen in the Orthodox community. And to this day, his name is instantly recognizable to many in the, the community. We'll be covering the, the, the Weberman trial in the next episode or the next few episodes. Uh, it'll probably be part of a multi-part series because there's way too much there for just one episode and all of it is important. Basically, Nehemia Weberman was to 2012 as Chaim Walder Yamach Shema was to 2021. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good way of putting it. It, it was yeah. everybody was paying attention to it, and it Everyone. really it really mm. forced the issue of sexual abuse into the faces of people who had previously not even known what the words were. Oh yeah, no, it was it was it was in the New York Times. It was all over. The, I mean, I remember driving to, to college. I went to Brooklyn College at the time. I remember hearing about it on the radio on Ten Ten Winds. Like it was everywhere. Yeah, those were back in the days when you could actually get press to report news. Oh, yeah, which is another thing <laughs> we'll discuss in another episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to have to have, um, you know, I don't want to say names to commit them to something that they haven't agreed to. But, you know, we've got a couple of, of, of journalist friends who are friends of Zaka, and I, I, I hope we'll be friends of the pod uh, who will come on and talk about the media landscape and why it's so hard to get news organizations to report on sexual abuse, to report on anything, really. I mean, but especially sexual abuse and especially sexual yeah. abuse in the film world. It's like I keep being told that it's too niche. Um, I even got told once by, <laughs> I once got told by the editor, uh, the editor in chief of a large Jewish publication. There aren't that many left. So I don't know. You could take your guess. I, I, I'm not going to name any names, but, um, she, she told me that she would publish more articles if I wouldn't post summaries of cases on Facebook, because like, what's the point of her publishing them if I've already written about them? It's like, I'm scooping them and, you know. And I'm sitting what? there like thinking like, I'm just some dude who has a Facebook account. Like you're a newspaper. Report the freaking news. But it's also, it's also so, it also does such a disservice because yes, you are just summarizing the the case. But like so many of these cases, there's like layers and layers of, of issues. Like, I mean, like if you were to summarize one of the like Avraham Mondrowitz cases, right? Like there's like three or four against him all from different institutions. You can write a whole article about that one person and and right. talk about the layers and layers of cover-up from Ohel to Gary Yeshiva to Chavetz Chaim, who owned the school that he worked in in the 70s. 
Like, yeah. it, whatever. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. But all right. You know, this is, this is how it goes. The media landscape has changed over the last 10 years for everybody, not, not just us. Um, it just happens to be that it, it, you know, it works to our disadvantage. Anyway, right after Weberman was arrested, the Satmar community in Williamsburg sprang into action to help him fight the allegations um, while not giving a single crap about the victim. Um, a massive victims. marketing campaign... Victims, right, yeah. There were more people who came forward uh, during mm-hmm. the trial. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that uh, in the episodes that we do about Weberman. Uh, about the... Yeah, the DA didn't end up prosecuting those, but... Whatever. I, I mean, he's in jail now. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Um, a massive yeah. marketing campaign was launched in which Weberman was described as the innocent victim of what to them was the equivalent of a blood libel, the historic anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that claimed that Jews were murdering Christian children to use their blood to make matzah, the unleavened bread Jews eat on Passover, and was used to justify untold numbers of pogroms that massacred countless European Jews. So this is what they were comparing the 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 victim of Weberman to doing, to essentially launching a blood, a blood libel. So in response to one of their guys being arrested, uh, a fundraiser was organized for Weberman at a popular wedding hall in the center of Hasidic Williamsburg. It was the Continental, for those who know Williamsburg, um, at which $500,000 was raised for his defense. Um, having myself grown up as a Yiddish speaker, it's my second language, not my first, um, and for those wondering where, why I don't have an accent, I don't know, maybe I'll talk about that at some point. Um, so having myself grown up as a Yiddish speaker, I understood what they were advertising. And in the course of arguing with Abe about the internet, see if I told him that if he really wanted to do something productive, he and the rest of the Zaka crew should instead protest outside of the Weberman fundraiser. Um, so in less than 24 hours, the Zaka crew organized a large protest outside of the Weberman fundraiser. Uh, it received a lot of media attention and helped force the Weberman case into the public awareness. The Asifa protest took place a month later and also left its mark, but the Weberman protest was really where Zaka got its start. Not to spoil our future episodes or anything, but Weberman was eventually sentenced to 103 years in prison for raping his child client. That's also how I got my start with Zaka, which eventually led to me becoming its, its director. Anyway, uh, enough about me. Ariella, who are you? What do you do? And how did you come to be involved in this work? Oh, I was totally unprepared for this question. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so um, I my background is actually not in um, social issues, really. My, my background is mostly in public health and clinical research. Um, but um, how did I come about? How did I get involved in this? Um, well, aside from the fact that uh, Usher being the the millennial with the neshama of a boomer that he is <laughs> asked me to run the tiktok account um because he knew how skilled i was at, at that aside and from i knew that, my place <laughs> he knew his place <laughs> his place is on facebook and twitter yeah. um this uh this particular issue is very personal to me in many different ways um so a bit about myself i myself am not a survivor um at least not in the sense of you know i mean one in four women are sexually harassed throughout their life. So aside from that, no, I'm not, I'm not a survivor, but, um, I, um, I had an aunt, um, I say had because she's no longer alive. Um, I had an aunt who was raped when she was in high school. Um, she was about 15 years old, um, by the Dean of her, uh, non-Jewish private high school, um, that my grandparents sent her to because she had learning disabilities and 
it was the 1960s and you know naturally at that time they sent people off to florida to some private school where they didn't have to deal with them instead of getting them you know services um because they weren't available at the time um and when she was there she was uh, she and a bunch of other girls there were all raped and sexually assaulted by the dean of the school and the board of trustees. Um, long story short, um, my whole family fell apart because of it. Um, she was also bipolar. So people stigmatized her, you know, told her she, that she lied. She made it up. She's doing it for attention. She's crazy. Um, she was in and she was in and out of, in and out of psychiatric facilities for many years. Um, she never ended up graduating from high school. She never went to college. Um, and at the age of 30, she um, jumped out of a building in 1978 um, in Manhattan. And um, my father, who's her twin brother, had to basically pick up the pieces. Um, and um, the whole family fell apart. Um, and, uh, you know, my father's in his 70s now. Um, and uh, I th I, if you were raised by Holocaust survivors, you understand the term survivor's guilt. So that's a bit about what what I had to witness growing up, you know, was watching my father feel this immense amount of guilt that, you know, he's still alive and his sister's not. Um, and it shaped my childhood. Um, the secondary trauma that happened because of it, you know, it penetrated myself and my sister's lives. Um, our lives were shaped by this person that we never met, who was basically a ghost in our lives that we never knew about. Um, and, the only existence of her now is whatever remaining pictures we have of her. Um, like I said, she never went to college. She had no family, no children, no nothing. So, you know, there's only one or two people left in this world that have ever met her or heard her voice, knew what kind of person she was. Um, and uh, basically what led me to get this work into Zaka was I, I've been following um, what's been going on in the Jewish community for a long time. Like I said, I've been following, I followed the Weberman trial when I was in college, which was in around 2012. Um, and I've been closely monitoring um, and following other cases as well. And, uh, you know, growing up, you know, having my own family, my own children, and just watching the world around me and and knowing what what the aftermath of picking up the pieces is like for somebody who loses a loved one because of suicide and sexual assault, I I don't want anybody else to have to deal with that. And that's why I do the work that I do. And that's why I am here. Um, because I, I want people to know that, um, that this is what we do for you. This is what we do for you when, when you go through these horrific experiences. Um, because my aunt didn't get to have those things. Um, so that's, that's a bit about me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing. And, and, yeah. and I mean, for those who haven't seen Ariella's work, what are you doing? Uh, but but also aside from making lots of people very angry, <laughs> right, right. Go on our TikTok and see what she's doing. She's doing incredible things. You know, I I go around, um, and and you know I travel and I'm I'm around for Shabbos or I go to a different you know city or whatever, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll talk about Zaka to people. And it used to be that when I said Zaka, people would think that I was talking about the one in Israel, which was a very Ugh. big problem since Yehuda Meshi Zaha ended still up being get a that. rapist. But, oh, I still get that. <laughs> but like, thankfully now, like in 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 significant part due to Ariella, like more people know what what our Zaka is, so they don't ask me that question as much. Um, That's true. And, That's and, very true. And actually, sometimes, and this actually makes me really happy when it happens. Uh, they're like, "Oh, Zaka, so, so so you work with who's that woman on the TikTok?" Or, like, <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I love, I love, I love how it's you work with me. I don't yeah. work with you. 
You work with me. <laughs> yeah. No, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy. I mean, seeing as you're masochistic enough to step into the spotlight, I'm, I'm more than happy to step a little bit out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so thanks for that. You're, you're very welcome. So, which is actually funny because lots of people on TikTok, they say, we want more of Usher. So you can't yeah. really can't really yeah. win but <laughs> they say that until like if i actually did daily content they'd be like oh, who's this boomer who's like you know <laughs> <laughs> why is his face so close to the camera <laughs> um yeah. and i say that even though the first 10 videos of zaka if you go far back enough are all me super close to the camera and i cringe every time um but anyway yeah so what i do is um i make videos on tiktok um some some are humorous if you can believe that we actually can do that around here um some are poking fun at institutions or either convicted or alleged abusers for things they said or did, which were absolutely, totally asinine. Um, we love to poke fun at people like Agoda Israel of America, Yeshiva mm-hmm. University. It's lots of fun. Um, and then other times we kind of act like mini journalists in that, you know, as Usher said, uh, we will summarize um, public lawsuits or uh, criminal convictions or investigations against people in the community. Um, now one thing people do ask me is, well, why aren't you covering like this celebrity or why aren't you covering the Catholic church or my favorite? Why aren't you covering Joe Biden? <laughs> um, recent fave. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, first of all, all, I don't really care if Joe Biden, you know, raped a bunch of people, you can throw him in jail and, uh, you can quote me. I really don't care. Like I'm, I, I might be progressive. I might be a leftist, but I'm no simp for Biden. Hmm. So that's number one. Number two is um, because we're a Jewish organization. If we were a Muslim organization, we'd be reporting about Muslim abuse. If we were Catholic, we'd be reporting about Catholic. The reason we do what we do is because, and Usher, correct me if I'm wrong, we're the only Jewish organization that is representative in much of the advocacy sphere, right? I mean, is there any other Jewish organization that's a member of SNAP? Well, at least in the in the U.S., we're, we're the only one who's doing the kind of advocacy that we do. Right. Yeah, yeah, in the United States, right. Um, but that, right, exactly. So we represent Jews and Jews adjacent. So, you know, we have some survivors who were, you know, molested by people in the communities. For example, Avram Mondrowitz molested non-Jewish kids as well. So we represent those people too. Um, and we represent people who were abused by uh, foster parents through OHEL or Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. Um, who didn't always, uh, not OHEL, but Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services did not, they were not specific to Jewish kids. They also dealt with non-Jewish kids. So we represent those people too. Um, so that's why we do what we do because, um, you know, as, and as Usher said earlier, the, uh, it's very hard to get journalists to report on every single case. You know, not, not all of them are as enticing or as relevant for the news cycle. It is what it is. And, um, there are survivors out there and that, that's not limited to TikTok or Instagram, which I don't run. And one day we will have Sarah, <laughs> who runs that account, on here because she is a real person and it's not yeah. me. <laughs> We're going to have to drag her on kicking and screaming. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, she'll, she likes, she loves it. She's great. She's, she's a rock star. You'll hear yeah. all about the work she does. She's fantastic. Um, yeah. But that's a little bit about what I do. And uh, I help connect. Uh, I'm also Usher's personal assistant. So I will... <laughs> Um, if you're, if you're a volunteer for our, our hotline, uh, and if you get scheduled to be on the phones, you're probably talking to me. So, yeah. um, yeah. And, uh, that's a little bit about what I do. 
But um, but you know who does a lot of other good work, Usher? <laughs> <laughs> Not the products and services right. that don't support this podcast. Okay, yeah. sorry. I just I that just was a little to bone that. that we're throwing for the behind the yeah, bastards fans out there. Y- yeah, you, you don't have to include that if you don't want to. I just wanted I just wanted <laughs> an excuse to say it. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, <laughs> okay, so now that you know what Zaka is and who we are, let's talk a little bit about what we do these days because uh, we've grown and changed a lot since the days of those first two protests. These days, we're focused on a few things. Number one is raising awareness about the issue and prevalence of sexual abuse in the Jewish community, particularly in the Orthodox community. Um, Number two is we create educational content for parents and caregivers on how to properly prevent and address sexual abuse. Three, we provide resources, uh, resource referrals to survivors, including mental health and legal referrals. Uh, four is we advocate for legislation designed to protect survivors from sexual abuse and secure justice for survivors. And by the way, um, so far what we've accomplished is uh, we worked on the Child Victims Act, got that passed in New York. We got a one-year extension Woo! passed in, in New York of the Child Victims Act, so the window ended up staying open for two years. We got Aaron's Law passed in New York, which was a mandate uh, for abuse prevention education in public schools. Our plan is eventually to go back and extend that to yeshivas as well, pri- to private schools in general including yeshivas. We worked Mm -hmm. on the child marriage ban in New York. So it's illegal to get married now in New York, um, unless you're 18. Um, And most recently, we worked on the Adult Survivors Act, which opened a one-year retroactive window um, for any sexual abuse that someone experienced as an adult that had previously passed the statute of limitations. It's Uh, still open. It it is still open. Yes, it, the window for filing. When does it close, Usher? Um, I don't think it actually opened yet. It start. It, it, it opens in November, I believe. So okay, it's so two months. Got a lot of time. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, but it's when does it close? Open. So it's it's going to close a year after November thirteenth, I think. So November thirteenth, twenty twenty three. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Something okay. like that. It's usually off by a day or two, but yeah. Um, so. So if you're yeah. listening to this and you know a survivor who was assaulted or raped. As an adult in New York State, come our way. We'll yeah. help you. Yeah, and by the way, there's a there's a window opening for for cases against individuals in New York City that's going to be open for two years. I think that's starting this month. Uh, but, oh, nice. But it doesn't allow anybody to sue institutions, so it, it's it's oh. it's a much more limited uh, it's a much more limited window, which is why we kept fighting for the Adult Survivors Act. Um, and the last thing we do, uh, as Ariella mentioned earlier, we run a Shabbos and Yom Tov mental health peer support hotline for people who need someone to talk to on, on Shabbos and Yom Tov and the usual resources aren't good enough, uh, especially since there's like a lot of particular traumas that people have around Shabbos. And also Shabbos is a very unique situation that non-Jews on like crisis text line or lifeline may not understand. So we want to provide a place where people can not only provide support, but also understand exactly what the person's going through, exactly the situation that they're in. Um, mm-hmm. And what's different about our current mission than our mission when we started is that we no longer focus on changing the community from within. Um, such change is rarely possible, and throwing resources at a community that actively resists change is a waste of those resources. Um, we, we figured initially that if we protest enough, if we awake people's passions enough, they would insist on change from the inside. That didn't end up happening. Um, So instead, we make ourselves available for those individuals who want help either reporting their abuser or helping themselves heal, and we do what we can to make access as easy as possible for justice and resources. Uh, And that's why we worked on bills like the Child Victims Act. One of the things that makes it so difficult for survivors in the Orthodox community is how difficult it is to report sexual abuse. 
um, to report anything really, but but especially sexual abuse. Um, as we mentioned earlier, in parts of the Orthodox community, particularly in the the Haredi world, um, reporting abuse without permission from a rabbi is considered misira or informing, as we explained earlier, and the consequences can be pretty severe for those who who report. Um, and even with permission from a rabbi to report, there's no guarantee that a survivor won't face back, backlash. And, and one example that we're going to talk about a little bit now, we're going to get into more detail in a later episode of the podcast. There's a lot of documentation to go through. There's a lot of stuff to go through about this case. Um, but in 2012, uh, rabbi Yessi Koko, who is the nephew of notorious and prolific child molester rabbi Yidi Koko, who had abused... I don't know, hundreds of children uh, while employed at Tart uh, Mima. Uh, and, Not just there. And also at a yeshiva in Lakewood that he worked at before, and also Camp Aguda. Um, and Camp Manavu. Oh, uh, add it to the pile. I didn't even know about that. Yep, um, I found yes. that out. So this guy was like, you know, the... the. For those of you that are in the modern Orthodox here, he was like the Richard Andron. He was everywhere. Yeah, uh, well, I, I guess Baruch Lanner would be a, a, a be- better example. Yeah, he was like a the Baruch Lanner of of because he 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 really was involved in everything, and and they they kept him around because he was very popular and apparently good for fundraising, which is very similar to why they kept Lanner around, um, which in hindsight was was a mistake. Lanner at least went to jail for a significant amount of time. Coco ended up being sentenced to a suspended. I think it was like three years suspended sentence. Um, yeah, there was all something sorts of, short. Yeah, there was all sorts of crap going on where like Yisrael Belsky was pressuring the, the, the victims at the time, which we're going to get into right now because it's relevant to the Yossi Koko case, his nephew. Also, it's a different state because Lanner was convicted in New Jersey and Koko was convicted in New York and New York had right. Charles Hines and all that stuff. Right, right. So it's a, it's a, it's a different land. Which is a whole other episode we're going to go over. Yeah, oh yeah. We're going to have... Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we could have a whole episode about the episodes that we're going to have whole episodes about. So, um, <laughs> so just keep listening. Um, so this Rabbi Yossi Koko was arrested in Lakewood for repeatedly raping a child. Um, and, uh, after a while of being sexually abused, the victim told his father about the abuse and the father being an Ehrlich Lakewood guy took Koko to Basedin, um, cause that's what he was told to do. Uh, he ended up winning Do we know the rabbi, do we know the rabbi that told him to do that? I, I don't think any rabbi specifically told him. I mean, he's he's a guy in Lakewood who was working for BMG. Like he he would have he would have known to go to a base then. Mm, okay. So so I don't know that there was any one specific person. Um, gotcha. But he ended up winning a case against Coco, uh, and Coco was instructed by the base then to give up teaching and to attend thirteen weeks of therapy, as if that would cure him. But whatever. Um, now we we should we should make it clear this is not an appropriate response to sexual abuse. No. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that. But just to reiterate that point, this is not an appropriate response to sexual abuse. But they did have no place investigating or prosecuting sexual abuse cases. They don't possess the necessary expertise. They have no method for enforcing their rulings. They don't have a registry. And even when Bati Din are honest, which is not often, Bati Din are notoriously corrupt. Their process is in no way transparent and can't be overseen or appealed. More, more to the point, New Jersey is where this abuse took place, and every single resident in New Jersey is, is a mandated reporter. Knowing about abuse against a minor and failing to, to report it to the authorities is illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, what that Basedin did was, was illegal. What the father did was illegal also, but, but the Basedin really should have known better. Um, so we, we unequivocally, just to be clear, we unequivocally support reporting suspicions or disclosures of sexual abuse to the proper authorities, 
It's not the place or purview of someone who finds out about the abuse to investigate it themselves. That should be left to, to law enforcement professionals um, who are trained in doing this. Uh, yeah, I, I get this question when all I say, the time. By the way, also, when, when people say proper authorities, we don't mean your rabbi that also is a therapist. We mean CPS if it involves minors. And we believe you're, we say your local police department. Right. So depending on the jurisdiction, yeah. there are different places to report. So for example, in New York, uh, if you're reporting uh, abuse that takes place within a family or by a guardian against a child, you have to report to the office of children and family services. If it's abuse that took place within a school by, you know, a, a, a faculty member against a student that has to be reported to police. So like the, the proper authorities isn't always the police. It isn't always CPS. It varies, which is why we use the term proper authorities. Um, each jurisdiction has a different place to, Correct. to report right. in. I just meant don't, don't go to like a rabbi who also knows about abuse. Right. Right. Cause some people think that. Yeah. Sexual abuse is not the place for, for, for machers. Go to somebody who like, you know, not somebody who like has 10 beepers and knows a guy who knows a guy who's in Shamanim. Like go, <laughs> go actually go to police or, or OCFS or CPS or whatever the, re the relevant agency is. And not auxiliary police. Right. Right. Uh, actual. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so sure enough, uh, after a few weeks of complying with the based-in mandated therapy, Coco just stopped going. It was like six weeks in, he just stopped going. Um, and the father of the victim went back to based-in to have them enforce their ruling. But they informed him that as a based-in, they lacked the ability or authority to do so. Go figure. Um, mm. Having followed the prescribed process he was told he should follow and getting nowhere, the father took the next step of reaching out to Rav Moshe Sternbach, head of the Badats in Israel, for permission to report Coco to the police. Rav Sternbach gave his permission and the father re reported to police. Um, many years earlier, just as an aside, when Yidi Koko was facing charges for his prolific sexual abuse of boys, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Belsky... Yidi's the uncle... Y sorry, Yidi's the uncle of Yosef. I know it could be very confusing. Yeah. Go on. Uh, it runs in the family. Um, <laughs> Rabbi Yisrael Belsky, Yemachshima. <laughs> and uh, some people may have just cringed at that. It just uh, hold on for a couple minutes before you angrily cl click this podcast away, you know? Um, the late Rosh Hashiva of Tarvadas had written a letter on behalf of Yidi Koko saying that the allegations were bogus. Um, he also pressured the victims at the time, which is why the, uh, Koko didn't end up being sentenced to anything real. He never sat a day in jail. Um, it's in large part because of the pressure that, that uh, Yisrael Belsky placed on, on the victims uh, in, in public. Um, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think, you know, this is speculation, but I think knowing what would happen if Yossi were successfully prosecuted for sexually abusing children, meaning he would probably point the finger at his uncle, Belsky wrote another letter on behalf of Yossi. Uh, the link to the letter is in the show notes uh, if you want to take a look at it. Um, in the letter, Belsky calls the father of the victim a miser, says he has no chelek in Eilam Haba, and in substance he says that the allegations are false and that if anything happened to this guy's son he was the one who did it to him. Like, his own father was the one, this is what Belsky's saying, that, like, anything that he's accusing Yossi Koko of, he himself is guilty of. Um, this letter was directly responsible for the victim being expelled from yeshiva and for his, bother, his father being fired as R Rosh Bechina in, in BMG. Um, and for those who don't know, BMG, Beis Medrash Gavoa, is the largest yeshiva in the country. Um, it's the Lakewood Yeshiva. Um, like the Lake also, also the, uh, I don't know if it was the assistant district attorney or the district attorney that was prosecuting Colco, but 
the district attorney, one of the district attorneys of New Jersey actually told Belsky to, in, in very diplomatic terms, to shut his mouth. Hmm. Otherwise, he was going to prosecute him for tampering with witnesses because that is how bad this letter was. That's how bad this this letter was causing problems. Yeah, you know what? Actually, uh, I've got the letter. I've got the letter up here. We may as well take a second to read it because it, it's 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 pretty shocking. And like, it, people should really know about like what Belsky did here. Um, mm-hmm. So the the letter itself is in is in Hebrew, um, but I'm gonna link. Uh, you know, I'm gonna read the English tra- translation for the benefit of both myself and the audience. Um, so it starts out, uh, my ears should have been spared hearing the horrific news that one of your fellow residents in town informed upon a fellow Jew to the hands of the secular authorities, may God spare us, Rahman al-Litzlan, for, mm. for which the halacha is undisputed that one who commits such an act has no share in the world to come. And he cites Chesh uh, Mishpat. Um, after conducting a thorough investigation, I am absolutely certain that Rabbi Yosef Koko, may his light shine, near a yair, is, is, is what he's saying, is perfectly innocent of any wrongdoing of any nature whatsoever, which is a pretty bold statement seeing as Coco ended up getting like 14 years in prison. Um, sorry, 15 years. I actually looked it up today. Um, is he still in prison? He is, yeah. Um, and and, and, not, and so Belsky goes on, and not only is he innocent, but it is also as clear to me that all these allegations are fabrications made by Redacted. The name is Redacted. Further, all the reports made to secular authorities were only for the express purpose of casting blame for their, the victim's family meaning, own shameful and cursed existence on others. And the truth is that the allegations they make against others are crimes they themselves are in fact guilty of, and they seek to cleanse their reputation by blaming an innocent man for their own deeds. So he's, he's accusing them of being molesters for reporting Yasukoko as a molester. Accordingly, as it is a great mitzvah to rescue the pursued from the hands of the pursuer and to make it known that the righteous man is right and the evil man is evil, to rescue a, pu- a pure and righteous soul. Therefore, anyone who has the ability to rescue the righteous and does not do so is considered as if he himself is the pursuer. And, and the pursuer, by the way, is the, the he, he said... Re- Rodeif, yeah. Rodeif, right. It means a, a, a murderer. And like by implication, what he's saying, because according to Jewish law, a murderer's life is forfeit, is that essentially he's saying this guy's life is forfeit. Now, he's not necessarily telling anybody to kill him, but he's saying like, you know, if it would happen, ah, you know, <laughs> yeah, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And then he, he, he quotes the, uh, the, the, the Rambam on, on Mesira. And then he ends off by, thus all who have the ability to influence the informers that they should retract their terrible deeds should do so. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's the letter he put out in public. And this was read by a lot of people. Um, and it was, it, it, like I said, it resulted in the, uh, in the father losing his, his position, um, as a Rosh Bechina in BMG and, uh, the son ended up, uh, being thrown out of yeshiva. Um, and, and, and also this letter was, was used, uh, for like, sh- uh, shortly after Coco's arrest, um, this letter was used for a massive fundraising campaign that was started on behalf of, of Coco. Um, ads for the fundraisers appeared in the local Lakewood paper. And actually, if you go to the link in the show notes where the, the Belsky letter is, it's the SFJ link, like you'll, you'll, you'll see 
pictures of ads in local Lakewood papers for raising money for this pedophile. Um, and people went around By collecting the way, money uh, in BMG. No, go, what? Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I have something interesting afterwards. Uh, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, uh, people went around collecting money in BMG and other Lakewood shuls, uh, and the family's the, the, the victim's family's name became dirt in Lakewood. Right. Um, the interesting is, uh, so uh, I'm not going to say his name just to protect his privacy, but maybe one day we'll have him on the show. Um, but um, so the great nephew of Yisrael Belsky, Makhshimo, actually supports us and follows us on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and whatever. He's a real sweetheart. Hmm. And um, not only did he witness... Kulko raping one of these boys, in addition to being Belsky's great nephew. Um, but he also um, t- he also said that Belsky knew that Kulko was guilty. He knew it. Yeah. And he did what he did anyway. Yeah, I mean, the speculation is that, uh, there's no proof of this, but like the speculation is that Yussi was going to point the finger at his uncle Yiddy and say that the reason he was a molester was because he was abused by his uncle. And Belsky, having poured so much effort... Uh, into protecting Yiddy Coco uh, would have had egg on his face if Yossi had done that, um, which... But didn't Yossi do that anyway? No, I don't think that actually happened. I, I, I tried looking for the sentencing notes uh, to see if there was any letters. I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find any record of it. Um, but but Belsky uh, no doubt thought that that was going to happen and uh, was probably looking to protect his reputation. He figured if he could, he probably figured if he could intimidate the victims into silence, he doesn't have to deal with this embarrassment. Um, but despite all of this, they pursued the case against Coco, who eventually pleaded guilty. Um, one whole rabbi apologized publicly for what had been done to the victim and his family, and his apology centered on the fact that he hadn't known that the family had gotten permission from Rav Sternbach to report to police, meaning... His apology wasn't that, oh, Yossi Coco was a molester and therefore I was wrong. It's that, oh, Yossi Coco was a molester and I didn't know that you had permission to report him. Um, the family ended up moving away from Lakewood. Um, so all of this is to underscore the point that Bate Din don't work, that, the inter- that internal reporting cannot be relied upon to properly address sexual abuse. Um, nonetheless, this is still in large part the community's attitude toward responding to sexual abuse. So we figured if we can't influence people from the inside, we can at least make justice as painless and available as possible when survivors are ready, despite the taboos to, to report. Um, according to various studies about the delayed disclosure of sexual abuse, within the general population, it could take decades for survivors to disclose their abuse to anyone. According to one study of Catholic victims of sexual abuse in Germany, the average age of disclosure was 52. Um, there's a, a link in the show notes also to a, a, a number of studies uh, on, this, uh, on this topic. Um, Within the general population, sexual abuse is a difficult issue to discuss and a difficult thing for victims to disclose. In the from world, especially, where unique social pressures like shidduchim, misira, etc. exist, it can take a long time before a from survivor feels ready to disclose or report their abuse. It could take decades. So that's why we worked on the Child Victims Act. Um, Before the Child Victims Act passed, the statute of limitations for sexual abuse was age 23 in New York. Um, it's actually a lot more complicated than that, but we're going to deal with that in another episode. For now, the shorthand is 23. It was age 23 in, in New York, both for criminal and civil. Um, and that meant that once a victim turned 23, they can no longer get justice for having been sexually abused. Um, it takes a lot longer than that for from victims, especially, to feel safe coming forward. So we wanted to make sure that they had as much time as they needed. 
With the passage of the Child Victims Act, a one-year window, which was then extended to two years, was opened during which old cases that had previously been barred by the old statute of limitations were revived and could be brought in court, and new incidents of abuse that took place after the passage of the CVA had until age 55 to be brought in civil court and age 25 or 28 for criminal court, depending on whether what happened was a misdemeanor or a felony. Um, while there weren't as many cases filed in the firm world as there are victims, there were many important cases filed that wouldn't have been possible without the CVA. And just to give a little bit of a contrast, there were 10,857 cases filed under the Child Victims Act in New York. Uh, total. total. Um, this was about 7,000 and change more than were filed in California when their first window opened. It was, it's, it's the largest number that was filed. Um, the New York Child Victims Act brought down the Catholic Church. Uh, many of them are, de many dioceses are declaring bankruptcy, and it was the nail in the coffin for the Boy Scouts. Um, so this was oh, yeah. a very significant law that passed. Um, by, by contrast, there are only 200 and, uh, about 250, 275 Jewish cases. We're not, we're not talking about Orthodox cases, Jewish cases. In terms of Orthodox yep. cases, there is maybe like 50, 75, and, and that, 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 that includes the Haredi That little? And, yeah, it's really not that much. Well, I guess oh. if you count the YU ones, it's more. Like if you count the YU ones as, in, as, as, as individual ones, it's probably closer to about, uh, you know, 100. I would. Yeah. I, I would, yeah. So, uh, would. yeah, so, mm -hmm. so roughly, you know, roughly 100 uh, uh, or so cases. And, and you know, the, the YU ones and like a couple of other cases account for a significant chunk of those. So, so actually, it's probably more than that because there's the South Shore one. There is the uh, what was it? The Manhattan Beach Y or something like that it has like. Oh yeah, why the why the shorefront Y. Shorefront Y, yeah, has like like 27 CVA cases against it. About one guy. Um, SAR has like 10. Right. So, so so maybe it's more. It's like it's it's like 150 probably in the Orthodox world, um, but. It's significant enough for a minority population. Right. But, but, but it, yeah. it's, it's small enough, especially given like how many cases are about the same perpetrators uh, within the same institutions yeah. that like, it's just a drop in the bucket. You, you walk, oh, it really you is. You walk into oh, a shul, really you walk into one shul, there's going to be more victims in that shul, given the prevalence uh, of sexual abuse. There's going to be more victims in that shul than, 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 than there are CVA cases in, in the firm world. Oh, oh yeah. No, the fact it, put it this way, if if your school, if you know of a Jewish institution that hasn't been sued by the child via the Child Victims Act, you should be saying thank you to that. You should you should be counting your lucky stars because chances are for every case that was filed, there's going to be at least four survivors that never got to show their their cases in front of a judge because they missed the window. Yeah. And I know that, you know, um, I mean, uh, Camp Aguda, I know that for. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that about Halb. We know that about YU. Uh, we know that about Ohel. Like it, that not every case that is filed is indicative of all the abuse cases that took place. Right. By any means. Right. Exactly. And uh, I mean, so there, there are like off, off the cases that were filed. E despite that, like some are are, are they're significant against significant institutions. For example. Um, just to give a quick a, a quick rundown, Ariella, you know a lot more uh, uh, of this at this point than I do. But like, just to name a few, there's YU. Uh, the OU is being sued for for what they did to Lanner, although that's in New Jersey. I think that's based on the New Jersey. Yeah, cases. it's in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, yep. There's High Lifeline, uh, Hamasbek, um, Bubov, Ger, Satmer. Um, 
Who am I missing? All Hell Children's All Hell, Services. Right. Jewish Board of uh, Family and Children's Services. Camp Sternberg, Camp Maginov, Camp Romamu. Camp Agoda. Camp Agoda. Yeah. <laughs> camp, camp, camp Ramah. Yeah. Um, Surprise Lake Camp. Yeah. Um, pretty much every JCC. Oh, and uh, Gan Izzy uh, in, in upstate. Oh, yeah. Camp, camp Gan Izzy, the sleepaway camp in Parksville, New York. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, and, um, oh, God. No, though there's oh, more. Oh, Yelid Vialda oh. was also sued. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Yelid Vialda. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's really how you Yeshiva are. of South Shore was, was sued. Yeshiva of Yeshiva South Shore. Miss Sifta, Miss Sifta of Long Beach, for those of you that remember the murder, that the cold case from the 80s, yeah. that Yeshiva, yeah, yeah, they're being sued. Um, yeah, Miss, yes, Yeshiva of South Fallsburg, they're being sued. Um, Oh, Hale Torah, United Lubavitch Yeshiva, uh, what's the one with Brisky? Chachmat Lenar. Is that how you pronounce Chanoch it? Chanoch Lenar. Chanoch yeah. Lenar. Thank you. That's it. Um, there's that one. Um, there's, uh, there was the case against, uh, Herschel Picard. Although that's not an institution. It's still a pretty significant. Well, that case ended up, um, unfortunately, being, being dismissed. I know. Yeah. Ugh, I know. But, you know, still pretty significant. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and Ramaz, oh, Ura. SAR, URA, thank you. Yeah. You're right. Oh, how can we forget URA? Yes, Girl Zone. Um, and um, what else is there? Uh, Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services has like, I don't know, 20, yeah. maybe more. Um, YMYWHA, um, Wexner. Oh, yeah. The, the, there's a That's lawsuit. a big one. Yeah, there's a lawsuit uh, open against Wexner under the Child Victims Act. Um, we're. We're we're hoping a story will come out about that soon. Yeah, because it's 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 pretty complicated. It's a very it's a very for those of you that don't know Wexner, Les Wexner, um, the founder of L Brands, who owned Victoria's Secret, Bath and Body Works, The Limited, and I think Abercrombie and Fitch, and the Wexner Foundation. Um, well, yeah, spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> um, donates. A, is is basically a, a, a cornerstone of of Jewish philanthropy, donating to tons and tons of Jewish institutions. Basically, if you're a rabbinical student, um, you've probably seen people say they're Wexner fellows. That's Les Wexner's money. Yeah, and that institution is being sued via the Child Victims Act. Yeah, and and we're gonna have to have uh, we're gonna have to have a whole episode about the the philanthropy world and the amount of sexual abuse that people get away with in there, like between Wexner and Michael Steinhardt. Um, uh, like, the, the, we're gonna have to have Dr. Alana Stockman, who wrote an, an incredible book called "When When Rabbis Abuse." I would highly recommend reading it for anybody who wants to understand the scope of the problem. We're, we're gonna have to have her on an episode. Um, but yeah, there's this is a very significant problem that exists in the the philanthropic space. Um, but the, but that's just like a small sampling of the CVA cases. And for every one, oh, sorry, one more Yeshiva of Brooklyn, both the boys division and the girls division. Yeah. Okay, continue. Um, <laughs> uh, got it in right under the wire. Um, yeah. And, and for for each one of these cases that was filed, there are a thousand other victims like that 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 have not disclosed and are not going to file cases for whatever reason, um, either because they yep. don't feel comfortable coming forward or because they're scared of the retribution or something. They're, th- th- those cases or they're are, dead or they're dead. Um, there was one plaintiff who died, uh, while the case against YU was, was, was going on and on. Um, so yeah. Yeah. N- now instead of John Doe 19, it's the estate of John Doe 19. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's what we mean when we wanted to make sure that 
that anyone who wanted it had access to justice when they were ready. Um, we couldn't make any of these institutions care enough about sexual abuse to actually do anything to prevent it, but we could at least make sure that when people were ready to seek justice, they'd be able to do it in their own time. Similarly, we make sure that people looking for help can be connected to resources that will actually help them. The therapists we recommend are ones we do due diligence on with to make sure that they're going to report abuse if they find out about it. Many from therapists, unfortunately, see themselves as from first, with their first allegiance being to the, the community and therapists second, and as such will, not, will often not report sexual abuse to the authorities and will discourage clients from reporting on their own. We try to ensure that when someone finally steps forward asking for help, that they get real help for themselves and their kids. Another important function we serve is publicizing information about current cases against alleged sexual abusers. This is also one of the most controversial things we do, although truth be told, it shouldn't, but it is. It really shouldn't be. Yeah. In this regard, we serve the same function as a newspaper should or would if from magazines and newspapers actually publish stories about sexual abuse. However, since the from media refuses to publish any information about sexual abuse at all, let alone about current cases, it falls to us to keep the public informed. Um, and by the way, just to illustrate the point about what happens when from publications actually decide to like try and talk about it. There was um, when the Weberman case happened, Ami magazine, which at the time was still trying to be a little avant-garde and edgy, um, published uh, interviews with Weberman's defense lawyer and uh, and DA uh, Joe Hines. And um, uh, for Hines's Charles, uh, no? he, he colloquially went by Joe, like you know his his, his oh, nickname is right. Joe. Um, so. They published the interview with Heinz was a general interview about general prosecution of like general crimes that kind of talked about abuse existing. Weberman's lawyer, George Farkas, got got to talk about Weberman um, and got to talk about how his client is being railroaded and how he's innocent. And despite the fact that Ami magazine like really skewed heavily in favor of Weberman and really gave him like a, a glowing interview with his lawyer, Satmar was so pissed off that they mentioned the case in public that they banned Ami. So I remember going to the grocery <laughs> store like that Shabbos when the articles came out and, and, and wondering, because like, I, I used to read Ami magazine every week um, when I still lived in the bar park. And I, I, went, I, remember, I remember distinctly going to the store trying to pick up an Ami magazine and not seeing it and asking the guy if it's sold out. And he's like, Ami Magazine? No, they're not allowed in my store anymore. You know, <laughs> it's like, I, was Amazing. Like, I knew at, at that point that this was not something I was, gonna, I was, I was going to, to discuss with him, even though he actually was, you know, he knew what was going on in, 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 in my home. And I'll, I'll talk about my own story in later episodes. But um, he was very, like, he genuinely caring and supportive about me. And he knew what was going on and he was on my side of it. Uh, but when it came to this case, like the fact that Ami magazine mentioned Weberman, I mean, I picked up a copy of Der Yid, which is the Williamsburg Yiddish language newspaper that week. And I read it cover to cover. And every single article was about Weberman. They didn't mention his name once. Like that, that's how the, the community operates. If you so much as mention it, forget writing an article. If you so much as mention it, that's too much. So, yeah, so that's why we go out of our way to publicize these cases. Um, and this is also the function that we get the most questions about. And since we're going to be discussing a lot of cases on this podcast, I'm going to take a couple of minutes to address some of the most common questions that we get. The first is inevitably, how can you publish these allegations when they haven't been proven in court? Don't you believe in innocent until proven guilty? Um, the answer, and by the way, every single person who asks this question thinks that they're being original when they call me and like they're, like they're the first oh, one to ever point it they out. They say it me. with their whole chest. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> and the answer to this, of course, is that innocence until proven guilty is a legal presumption in court. The presumption of innocence may prevent people out may prevent people outside of the courtroom from being able to definitively call someone else a criminal until that's proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But it doesn't require anyone to credulously pretend that the allegation wasn't made. To underscore this point, I usually like giving an example of someone pulling out an AR-15 in Times Square and shooting 10 people in front of thousands of witnesses. According to the law, he's presumed innocent until proven guilty in court, even though thousands of people witnessed the murders. However, he's also likely to await trial behind bars because he represents a danger to the public and no one in the public is required to hire him as a bodyguard or sell him firearms. There's another example I want to I want to throw in here, um, being that I am a parent. Okay, so for those of you that have children, right, I'm sure you've seen every single, uh, you know, tchotchke on the market for your babies, right? Whether it's the Doc Tot or some crib or some choking some toy, right? And you'll and then a few months after, uh, you know, it comes out, you might see it's pulled from the shelves. Why? Because of there was a child that suffocated from it somehow or died, um, and they 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 can't they 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 are in the process of trying to definitively figure out whether or not that object is the result of this fatality. But in the meantime, they're pulling the product off the shelves. Why? Because they're not going to take that liability or that risk. The same thing goes for sexual abuse, right? You, you, you don't know in that moment whether that, whether that person did or didn't do it. That's not the point. The point is removing the risk of danger. That's the point. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. This, 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 the same it applies to alleged sexual abusers. Um, the fact that they haven't yet stood trial doesn't require us to pretend that the allegation was never made. Nothing requires us to employ them as teachers, babysitters, or nannies just because they haven't yet stood trial or been convicted. We are still legally allowed to exercise our common sense when we're aware of potential dangers to our children, and we very much should. And that's why we make sure to inform the public about current cases of sexual abuse, whether civil or criminal, because we believe very strongly that parents should be able to make informed decisions about who is allowed around their children, which institutions they should trust with the care of their children, and which rabbis and leaders they should trust for advice in their and their children's lives. Because without knowing who's been accused of sexual abuse, which institutions have been accused of cover-up, and which rabbis and leaders have been accused of enabling sexual abuse, it's impossible to make those informed decisions. So another question we, we get a lot is, um, how do you know that what you're posting is correct? Are you doing your own investigation and hearing both sides before posting about cases? And to that, our answer is that we're posting public information about cases currently active in court. We are not posting random social media posts. We aren't posting rumors. We aren't posting innuendos. We're posting about cases currently in court or in the media. So if a mainstream source, um, so like not Alex Jones, you know, like a, 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 an actual newspaper. They're putting chemicals in the water that turn the freaking frogs, Kay. Yeah, right. Not that guy. If, if, if like a reputable newspaper... Uh, or media outlet publishes a story, we'll, we'll publish that, you know, we'll publicize that also. Um, it's, it's neither within our ability nor is it our place to conduct investigations and make determinations of guilt or innocence. That's what the courts are for. Our job is to make sure that the public is informed of potential threats. Another common question is, how do you know the allegations aren't false? And if it turns out that they are false, will you publish a retraction and apology? And um, we get this question a lot. And Honestly, it speaks to an extreme ignorance of the realities of sexual abuse. Um, according to a number of studies, links in the show notes, 
Um, the false action rate for sexual abuse is somewhere between 2 and 10%. That's based on a number of different studies. So this is in aggregated per, per percentage. According to one study from Los Angeles in 2014, the false reporting rate was roughly 4.5%, uh, which is consistent with the false reporting rate for other crimes, and that was weighted heavily toward men of color. Um, um, the other thing I also have to remember is that these accusations of these false allegations are also, I would say, nine out of ten times, according to the findings, uh, coming out uh, during custody battles. So they're not happening during, like, uh, for example, like when a victim is suing her own abuser directly. We're talking about cases of custody disputes. Right. It should be noted, though, that that these stats indicating a low incidence rate of false reporting. Um, include these. So there's this common misconception that abuse allegations are categorically false when it comes to, to custody battles. And we're going to deal with that in a future episode. But that, that's actually not true. And it leads to family courts not caring about sexual abuse, which is a massive problem. Um, yep. And there are a bunch of reasons why, unlike other crimes, people are obsessed with the idea that reports of sexual abuse are false. Number one, no one wants to believe that the people they know are capable of sexual abuse. Spoiler alert, Everyone who has ever been convicted or found responsible in civil court for sexual abuse has been known by people, has had friends, and usually didn't fit the stereotype of how popular culture likes to portray pedophiles as weird, creepy, and immediately recognizable in a crowd. In reality, they're usually amiable, outgoing, often charismatic people who are able to draw their victims and their families in with their charm. Um, Mm-hmm. Number two, especially in the from world, sexual abuse is an uncomfortable topic that people feel reflects poorly on the community, so they prefer to believe that it doesn't happen, and believing that false reports are prevalent is easier than believing that sexual abuse is a prevalent problem, um, which, tough, like, deal, deal with it. There's nothing that indicates that the incident rate is lower in the from world on sexual abuse, despite what Aguda likes saying. Um, <laughs> despite, well, who was it? Was it? Avi Schaffer um, likes. David? Uh, David Mandel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, David Mandel. Yeah. Yeah. He did that. Yeah, a lot of people like claiming that the incidence rate is low, and it's because there is no accurate data on the firm world because the firm world actively resists study. So if the absence of data can, you know, can, can, people can say, oh, look, well, if there is no data, the problem must not exist. No, the data doesn't exist because we don't talk about it. Anyway. We're not willing to cooperate. Yeah, and the, the one thing it should be noted, like the one single biggest, most clearest indicator of whether sexual abuse is going to be an increased problem within a community, forget religious, forget Jewish, within a community, whether this is within a school, secular, religious, otherwise, whatever, is whether abusers can assume that they can abuse with impunity. And in the from world, they absolutely can, because the default assumption Mm -hmm. is that no one's going to report it, because if they do, they're going to face consequences. And that's why we mm-hmm. exist, is to help people come forward. Because it's, because it's so difficult, people need a lot of help when they come forward. Um, so for an, another reason why people think that there's a high incidence rate of false reporting is that for a long time, there have been a lot of bad studies on the prevalence of false reports. So just to clarify, a false report is only a false report if there was a definitive finding of falsehood by a court or law law enforcement. That's not a recantation. It's not that the case was dismissed. It's not that the case was dropped. It's a definitive finding of falsehood. In other words, an investigation finds that not only did the abuse alleged never happen, but they they find that it was made up by the person who reported it. Um, False report prevalence studies had for decades counted cases that were dismissed, thrown out, or not guilty verdicts and, or, or were recantations. And it's, it's only very recently, with, within the last like 20 years, that, that the, 
that the methodologies have been standardized for these types of studies to account for these kinds of misclassifications. Um, and, and like, I, I know this from my own personal experience. Anybody who does this work knows this, but like one of the stories that I encountered very early on was a friend of mine's wife was being stalked by a Hasidish guy uh, in, uh, in Borough Park, and she managed to trick him into showing up at the Bikachelem room in Maimonides Hospital, she, and she told him to wait for her there. She snapped a picture of him so she could get his identity, and then went to the 66th precinct in Borough Park to try to report. Um, and the desk sergeant, when she tried to report, was like really trying hard not to let her report. Um, he kept saying things like, oh, I know you people, you come in, you file reports, a day later you recant, like don't waste our time, come on, you know you're not gonna push this case, like just, just don't waste our time, just go home. And she's like, no, no, really, I, wa I want to report. And you know, she insisted, so he gave her, um, he gave her uh, a, a complaint sheet to, to, to fill out, she fills it out. Now, sexual abuse allegations or any sort of like sexual misconduct allegations are supposed to be anonymous. They're supposed to go to SVU and the, the, uh, the complainant is supposed to remain anonymous um, until the trial, obviously. When, you know, the defendant has a right to know, but, but everybody until that point, the public is not supposed to know, um, mm -hmm. you know, unless they decide to disclose. Um, within two hours, she had gotten a call from Yankee Daskal at Showroom. Yanki Daskal, by the way, is currently uh, awaiting trial for uh, allegedly raping a 16-year-old girl who lived in his house. So, um, you know, life's a funny place sometimes. Um, so she gets a call from, from Shomrim, you know, really laying it on thick, like threatening her and also playing the Parnassa card, like, this guy has a family, how could you do this to him? It was a mistake, blah, blah, blah. She ends up deciding, you know what, it's not worth it dealing with all this garbage. She walks in the next day and recants. And the officer, like, really gives her a hard time for it. Now, it, depending on how a, a, a false reporting study is being conducted, that may be counted as a false report. Was it? Absolutely not. She recanted because she was pressured. So it's very important to, like, make sure. I had one rabbi told me um, that he had read a study that 28% of, of, of reports are false, which is an insane number. And I, I know that study he read, and it counted from the 70s, and it counted you know, things like recantations and not guilty verdicts and, you know, things like that. Like, th there's such a misconception about this. Um, from my own experience, now, this is, again, there, there is a, do a documented false, false report rate, so it does happen. It's just very small. Um, and in my experience to date, in my 10 years of doing this work at Zaka, not a single case we've dealt with that has gone to court has ever been found to be false, ever. Right. Um, do false reports happen? Absolutely. As indicated by the research, there is a small prevalence of false reports. They happen, but they happen so infrequently that concern for false reports should never override concern for victims, their safety, and ensuring that they get justice. Due process is important, and it should be followed in court. We are very careful to only post information that is publicly available, either in court or already in the media, to ensure quality in the, in the information we share. Another right. question we get a lot is, who's your rub? Who gives you a heterot? to do this work. So some people are going to be disappointed by me. This. Right. Exactly. I'm like, <laughs> I'm the rub. <laughs> so, some people are going to be disappointed by this answer, but we don't use or need a rub for the work we do around sexual abuse for halachic shilas around the uh, operation of our Shabbos and Yom Tov hotline. We use Rabbi Yosef Blau as our posseg. Uh, if we ever asked him a shaila about whether or not we should be reporting on cases or telling people to report abuse to the authorities, he'd probably call EMS to perform a wellness check on us. Um, 
Also, what, just 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 to think about this for a minute. After hearing us go on a whole diatribe about how rabbis are not capable of dealing with vetting sexual abuse allegations, why in God's green earth would you get then go and ask us? So who's yeah. our rough? Yeah, but people do all the time. Who, you know, who do we trust? As if like <laughs> you know, as if it invalidates what they're posting. Like this information that's in court. It's a gotcha. It's like, you know, yeah, sure, this information exists, and people can find it if they Googled it on their own. But like the fact that you posted it without explicit permission from a rabbi means that we don't have to care about it. Like, okay, but your kids are still in danger. You know, maybe care about that. Um, so we don't need a heter to do this work, and frankly, people <clears throat> should need a heter to not do this work. Like. Sexual abuse is literally pikuach nefesh. The damage caused to victims of sexual abuse can be life-threatening, and as such, protecting people from sexual abuse also falls within the geder of pikuach nefesh. An abuser is begeder rotzeach. It's like like they're committing an act of murder because victims of sexual abuse often, not always, but they often experience depression, anxiety, they struggle with eating disorders, self-harm, PTSD, addiction to drugs and alcohol. Well, it is a fact that it, it is a fact that the suicide rate is is significantly right. higher for those that are that, victims of sexual abuse. That was the yeah. next one was the, the and, and, yeah. and suicidality. You know, I, I I used to work at an organization um, that was a drop-in center for at-risk kids, and like according to the director of the center, uh, something like eighty-five to ninety percent of the kids uh, had been sexually abused, and they had this wall. I don't, I don't remember what it was called, wall of tears or something that listed um, the names of kids who had been in that center who, who died, either by overdose, by suicide, by gang violence. And uh, in the two years I worked there, the list got a lot longer. So this happens. Yeah. The community doesn't see it because they choose not to see it. Because once these kids are involved in, you know, in, in drugs or anything like that or are starting to go a little bit off the derech or starting to act out in yeshiva or get kicked out of yeshiva, the community no longer thinks of them as their problem. So this happens outside of the view of the, the, um, the community. But, but kids died because of this. It's, so it's pikuach it's nefesh, and someone who commits an act of sexual abuse, it's, it's like they're committing an act of murder. Victims of sexual abuse die mm-hmm. every day because of the abuse that they suffer. And we take this issue very seriously because it's a very serious issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another question we get is, isn't it lush and hard to discuss allegations that haven't been proven? No, it's not. It's the literal definition can of we, Matoelis can we, Harabin. Can we have the f- can we have the fart noise anytime? So, like <laughs> just like shut them up. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it, it is the literal. When the Chavetz Chaim talks about a Toelis Harabim for the public benefit, this is what he's talking about. This is the literal definition of Toelis Harabim. Warning the community about potentially dangerous people is exactly what this kind of speech is for. It's a mitzvah to inform people about the potential dangers to themselves and their children. You could be saving a life by by warning them. And I'm sure we're going to be getting a lot of questions as we continue this podcast, and we welcome them. We're going to be responding to whichever questions we can at the beginning of each episode. So please feel free to send any of your questions to podcast at zaka.org. That's podcast, you know, like the word podcast, at zaka, which is Z-A-A-K-A-H dot org. And we'll address them on a future episode if we can. In general, our vision for this podcast is to do deep dives on cases, explain in detail what's happening with them, discuss in depth what proper procedure and processes should look like, interview experts on preventing abuse and securing justice for survivors, and keeping people informed on current events. Uh, If anyone has any suggestions for podcast episodes, interview guests, complaints, you want to tell us that we're a bunch of jerks, you want to tell us that we're doing a good job, email us at at, at podcasts at zaka.org.
Um, for more information about our services, you can find us at Zaka.org. To stay on top of all the latest information, follow our socials. For the older demographic, and Rabbi Sai, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash Zaka. Uh, and on Twitter, Insta, and TikTok, we're at Zaka NY. Z-A-A-K-A-H-N-Y. Um, with, yeah, two A's. Two A's, yeah. At the beginning, and then another A two afterwards. A's. Yeah. Uh, yes, and an H. And an H. Presumably, if you're watching this podcast, you're going to see it written out. So just like that, that word, that's where you email us. Podcasts at Zaka.org yeah. or at Zaka NY um, for, for our socials. Um, and uh, yeah, keep coming back. I think next time we're going to be talking about the Nehemiah Weberman case. Um, it, yeah, Rude. it's going to be a, a multi-part because there's so much to discuss. There's like so much background to, to, to discuss, um, because it was such a seminal case. Um, so yeah, um, uh, we don't yet know what the podcast schedule is going to be, um, cause we're two very busy people, but you know, just subscribe and, um, you know, and you'll get the episodes when they come out. 